According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. You may join me in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 this morning. As we get situated, we can uh, sit and uh, check our cell phones. <laughs> For your relative uh, vibration status there. We don't want the message to cause you to vibrate, but uh, you can put your phone on vibrate and that uh, removes distractions from others. All right. Where God requires us to be in fellowship and to be humble. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that both those matters are taken care of, that we have no known sin uh, left unconfessed, and prepare to receive the word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and the blessing that it is for us to assemble here this morning. Father, it's been a few weeks. We've had a break from this Wednesday morning class, but we thank you for uh, returning us to this schedule and this routine. Um, but Father, we pray in, in so many ways that, that uh, such things never become routine or that we take them for granted or somehow uh, grow complacent or bored with the schedule. Father, once again, you are very graciously allowing us to your very presence to study uh, your truth, the glories of your word that you have magnified in accordance with even your very name. And so, Father, as we approach, we recognize that we are on holy ground, that we do not deserve this in and of ourselves. But, Father, it's your Son in Christ in whose name we come, and we thank you for his faithfulness in allowing us to participate in your grace eternal plan. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, well, we started episode 13 some time ago, had uh, a week off for the Schaefer Conference, and then two weeks off with the missionary travels to Kiev, and so um, probably ought to just run through the introduction to this one more time, and then bring us to our new material that we're going to cover here in the context of Luke chapter 12. This is an episode that encompasses the entire chapter, verses 1 through 59, and uh, it's simply titled, Jesus Deals with Hypocrisy, Covetousness, Worry, and Alertness. And that's the title I took from the Harmony of the Gospels that we've adapted, that we're making use of. It's not the greatest title in the world. But uh, then again, I'm not the author of a Harmony of the Gospels. So if I'm going to use other men's stuff, then I shouldn't be too critical of their, of their title, should I? So in any event... Hypocrisy, covetous, worry, and alertness, that covers four realms. This actually is a decalogue of emphases in this chapter. The Outline Bible divides this chapter into a decalogue of ten emphases. That's the plural of emphasis, in case you didn't know. Uh, a decalogue of ten emphases. And we're going to handle them for you under points uh, three through twelve. Uh, just simply one by one, each emphasis having its own independent point of study with whatever amount of subpoints required to develop it out. But it is an interesting concept because we are seeing 
seemingly now conflict intensifying. We're seeing the uh, increased demonic opposition. And as the conflict increases, Jesus uh, escalates the situation. He accelerates his teaching schedule. He launches his teaching ministry into high gear. And I think we're observing that not only in the just the sheer volume of messages that he spits out, but also in the number of events that take place in these final six months leading up to the cross. Uh, there have been those who feel like these final six months are too crowded, just in the sheer number of events. Uh, and they basically, based on the pace of events through the Galilean ministry and the length of time there, and then they see this uh, crunch of events in the last six months, and it's caused a lot of guys to think that maybe we've got a problem in our timeline. Maybe we need to stretch it out a little bit. In fact, the Cheney timeline uh, makes a total of five years of ministry for Jesus Christ and helps to spread these uh, these events out. Um, I've studied it, and there's a lot to say for the Cheney uh, timeline, but I've nevertheless stuck to the traditional three and a half year model, um, even with the compressed events in this time frame. And I think there's a reason for that. I think it's part of what you see here on this point is that Jesus is accelerating his teaching ministry. He, the messages he's delivering and the preparation he's pouring into his disciples to prepare them for his death and departure and the things they have to deal with. So, Anyway, these are the things that we look at when we try to give the overall chronology of the life of Christ. Secondly, we notice the increased hostility by the religious leaders is prompting uh, what I, in tongue-in-cheek I'm calling myriads of tramps. Myriads of tramps. And the vocabulary of katapateo is to stomp or to trample or to tramp something down. And we see that there are so many crowds around, they're literally stepping all over each other. And it's an idiom we still have in the English language uh, 20 centuries later, but it was the idiom of the day. And we see it here in chapter 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. And he began to say to his disciples, first of all, and so myriads of tramps. And this is something that we ought to be mindful of. Hordes and hordes of people is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, you may be gathering quite a crowd, but for entirely the wrong reasons. They may be the lynch mob that's gathered to uh, run you out of town on a rail. So don't be all excited at how packed the parking lot is or how, uh, <laughs> how many seats are occupied. Understand why are they there and what is the, uh, the objective and the exercise. And despite the presence of these huge numbers, Jesus kept his first focus, first and foremost, on his true disciples. And we see that again at the end of verse 1, where he begins teaching or saying to his disciples first as a priority. All right, episode 1, or emphasis 1, I should say, was on hypocrisy. And uh, we covered this already under verses 1 through 3. Uh, we saw the parallel for this, went back to the Galilean ministry, episode 45. Uh, almost all of these ten emphases have parallels elsewhere and previously in the life of Christ. It seems as uh, he accelerates his teaching, he's giving his disciples uh, review lessons. He's teaching reminders. He's teaching under principles of repetition, where obviously it is edifying to hear a class over and over again, uh, maybe with some 
uh, variation, maybe with different illustrations or different contexts, but still it's fruitful to hear a lesson more than once. And so the parallel for the hypocrisy message is uh, takes us back to Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8. In your notes, uh, you would have covered that under Galilean Ministry, episode 45. It had the title of The Disciples' Carelessness Condemned. Now I'm going to skip through the subpoints on this, just for our sake of time today. What we covered in our... Most recent session was emphasis number two, which is true fear, the fear of the Lord, the fear that we are to maintain, because it's a passage actually that tells us not to fear or not to be afraid in verse four. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid. And it then tells you in the contrast in verse five what it is that you should be in fear of. Keep those thoughts in mind because it's going to continue to carry forward into today's lessons when we uh, look at the sparrows and the hairs of your head. Uh, of course, you know, God takes care of the sparrow. And we know if he takes care of the sparrow, then he's going to take care of us. And, uh, you know, some of my favorite, that, that old song uh, that, that uh, John sings occasionally uh, comes from this very passage. No, God takes care of the sparrows. We're worth much more than sparrows. And, uh, and yet, look what we have there in verse 7. We have the do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So even though we're counting F emphasis uh, three separately from emphasis two, it really is an extension of that. It's a continuation of the admonition against fear. So uh, I guess three weeks ago now we gave you the subpoints on this and we went through this study in verses four and five. Let's read the verses here. I say to you, my friends. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do. In other words, if you're afraid for your life, uh, that's a good thing, because that's not really any big deal. It's only temporal, it's only physical, it's only earthly with respect to uh, what they can do to the body. There's limits to what they can do, and, and when you're dead, then they're done. Uh, but he goes on to say, in contrast with the physical is the spiritual, with the temporal is the eternal. He says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And uh, see, as soon as you're physically dead, then you're out of reach for those that are physically uh, human beings here on the planet. But in terms of our fear of the Lord, uh, your physical death does not put you out of his reach. You are in his realm, um, and we understand that. Now, the authority to cast into hell, you say, well, I'm not worried about that because uh, I'm a believer. I'm saved. I don't care about the threat of hell or the danger of hell. I don't have a fear of hell. Uh, that doesn't apply to me. I'm going to ignore this verse. Well, look at it again. Notice in verse 1 who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his disciples, first of all. And notice, secondly, in verse uh Four, where he says, my friends. So this is very much the case of a message that is addressed to believers and one that we ought to be concerned with. We gave it to you as subpoints. Jesus addressed this message to his friends, his philoi, those with whom he engaged in the philos rapport love relationship with. And he tells them not to be afraid of temporal affliction. You know, there are certain things that have to be spoken to your friends. 
And if you don't say them, you're not a friend. There you go. Okay. See, I don't even have to get up here and teach. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? If you don't say it, you're not a friend. And in love, in friendship love, in philos love, you will be motivated to minister in that capacity. And uh, in particular, as the cross is approaching, you better believe this is a concept that Jesus himself is uh, reviewing in his soul, in his mind, uh, locking in the promises of God, uh, grounding his thinking in the uh, sufficiency of Scripture, because he's going to face his own physical death. And he has, to not, he has to face that without the fear of physical death. And so while he's cycling the doctrine himself and preparing his own uh, martyrdom, he, uh, in friendship, love, wants to be able to teach Peter and all these, these other knuckleheads the same thing. And, and they've got a long way to go. They've got a long way to go. But so far as we understand it, all of them will be martyred, uh, with the exception of John. John is the only apostle who will not be martyred in the uh, outworking of God's plan for their life. So he tells them not to be afraid of temporal affliction. If persecution is a matter of physical life or death, then it's not truly critical. And I love the way the scripture phrases it. Uh, those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. You know, that's all they can do. And we've got, it, it's neat because this verse minimizes that. And yet we have idioms and, and outlooks that maximize that, right? We, have, we use that as a, as a uh, figure of speech that represents the most serious thing in the world. We say, this is important. This is a matter of life and death. Right? We, that's an expression that's, that communicates that this is the most important thing in the world. There could be nothing possibly more important when we say, listen to me, listen to me. This is a matter of life or death. And yet that very figure of speech is flawed. Because far from being the ultimate of things in importance, matters of physical life and death are far less important than matters of spiritual life and death. See? So, the true fear is for the one who has authority to cast into hell. And the true fear of the Lord is what we need to maintain. And this was our second point of study on the true fear, the godly reverence, the urath of uh, the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, the fear of the Almighty. The whole point in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, we have to develop our fear of the Lord. And this has been a feature for humanity. Uh, I believe it was a feature for the angels in their stewardship. It's not uh, a dispensational function. It's simply a creation function. We are to maintain our creature-creator perspective and have the proper fear, reverence, orientation to our Maker. And so the fear of the Lord, the Urath Yahweh, uh, here in Luke 12:5, also, of course, Proverbs 1:7, and repeatedly, See, the critical realm is spiritual life and death, not physical life and death. And you say, well, what about the statement earlier that I'm not, no longer afraid of hell? No, you're no longer afraid of it. You're no longer sentenced to it. But don't confuse the fact that he still maintains the authority to cast you there. Although believers no longer fear being cast into hell, we must never lose our fear of the one with the authority to do so. God does not surrender His authority when He applies grace to our account. You understand that? He still maintains the authority. 
His authority is not diminished when he applies grace to our account. His sovereignty is not diminished when he applies grace to our account. And yes, we're saved by grace through faith. Yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we receive his righteousness. And because of that, he does not cast us into hell. But just because he does not do so, don't confuse the fact that he still maintains the sovereignty and the authority to do so. Saying, he has such authority, he eternally has such authority. So, um, in any event, the uh, overwhelming passage there in my mind is the one in Hebrews 12 where we can define in a church age context the fear of the Lord as we operate in our spiritual priesthood on uh, the heavenly Mount Zion and uh, where we approach with our God as a consuming fire and how it is that we are to serve him and to have that acceptable service with reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord was a dominant theme for Israel and their stewardship, but it also has a tremendous emphasis for the church and our stewardship as well. And this is where we ran out of time, giving you the passages in 2 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 7, Philippians 2.2, 2, as 2.12, by the way. It's a typo that we found last week or last time. Ephesians 5.21, Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. fear of the Lord. And I hope, um, I'm excited. I don't know if they're going to be on tape or not, but uh, I was in uh, Jim and Phyllis Meyer's home last week and uh, he was mentioning that he's about to start a new series Sunday morning on the fear of the Lord. And I thought, wow, that'd be a super series. like to have it. Um, I don't believe they make recordings though. And that's, that's unfortunate because I would really be blessed from hearing a, a class like that from a teacher, a pastor like, uh, like Jim Meyer's. And he had a a uh, agreement or like-mindedness with something I had said three weeks ago is that I think that fear of the Lord is something, by and large, we've lost in 21st century American Christianity. And we have um, uh, emphasized our relationship to the Father in Christ. We've discussed the intimacy we have in Christ and the sonship. All of that is true, but it cannot come at the expense of our fear of the Lord. And uh, we need to have a intimacy that does not compromise the fear and the reverence to which he is eternally entitled. All right, well, then the new ground we're going to gain with here starting this morning is emphasis number three, God's care. Emphasis number three, God's care. Verses six and seven, as I've already hinted at, it refers to the, the sparrows here as well as the hairs on your head being numbered. Uh, it is a review, in a sense, because these words were previously spoken in episode 34, Galilean ministry episode 34 from Matthew chapter 10, when he first selected the uh, 12 apostles, the, uh, what did we call that, the Dodecapostolog, that's what it was, all right, the 12 apostles, and um, yet here we have it again, and so we're reminded that repetition is valuable and it's also encouraging because, you know, a lot of times when believers are under testing, it's not that they forget, it's not that they don't know anymore, but that they don't, they still know the truth, but they, they need the reminder still so that it becomes reinforced and so that it becomes refreshed, so that it, it once again has that power to calm the soul. And it's, uh, 
in my mind, it's part of that Holy Spirit dynamic. When the Word of God is communicated, it's the Holy Spirit communicating it. And when the Holy Spirit hears it, or when the believer hears it, it's the Holy Spirit received. That's that dynamic to verbal, face-to-face teaching. And so even though the doctrine's in residency and it's part of your gnosis or your epinosis or your oida, whatever, you got it stashed away in residency still. There's the value when, it, when he that has an ear, let him hear. And it might be a doctrine you've heard 50 times, but on that 51st time, it still carries that Holy Spirit's power and it reaches your soul in a fresh way. And you say, yeah, that's right. I knew that. Thanks for the reminder. Okay? Because I knew it, but I really haven't been thinking about it very much lately. So the fresh reminder just brings it that much more alive. So... Here's your economics of grocery shopping in verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Okay, and you all know that. That's the going rate at H-E-B for sparrows. Okay. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet, not one of them is forgotten before God. Okay. And this is a wonderful lesson. Jesus uses a... uh, a realm of teaching here that everybody understands. Uh, men, women, anyone understands. If they've been to the marketplace and they're, they're, they're bringing home dinner, this communicates. Because the sparrows were the, um, the cheapest. They were the most economical. They were the, the most humble, the most poor. Uh, if you could afford better, you'd get better. But if, if this was all you could afford, this is what you got, was you got your sparrows. And that became your meat. That became your protein. So he uses this and, uh, and communicates the cheapest of food, and yet God takes care of the sparrows. He's taking care of us. Um, yet not one of them is forgotten. The idea in forgetting there is neglect. Not one of them is neglected by, uh, before God or in the face of God. Not one of them is neglected. They've lived their life. They were born, they've grown, they've died at the proper time. They're, the purpose for their life and death is for your nourishment and um, so forth. These stupid animal rights idiots that get out there and are worshiping the creature instead of the creator, you know, and, and promoting animal rights and all this other stuff. Uh, fail to identify the purpose for these things even being there. They're for us, for our food, for our nourishment, for us to praise God and what He's provided. That's why I like the people who eat tasty animals uh, <laughs> label for PETA. Yeah, I'm a PETA member. That's people eating tasty animals. And uh, I enjoy that. So, God doesn't neglect the sparrows. doesn't neglect them. And then the, he goes on in verse 7, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The precise number. You say, well, why does that matter? Who cares? Obviously, God does. He knows them. He knows every last one of them. He's numbered them. He's, catalog- he's got them in his catalog and it shows you the degree of his omniscience. And when you realize that he has... Yeah, I know, Doug. Sorry. It's a, when, the, uh, yeah, some have a lower number. That's, that's all right. The point being, God knows that number. So the next time you decide to throw your own little pity party and think that somehow God's unaware of the problems you're faced with, think again. He knows exactly what you're faced with. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Okay. 
And if he knows that, then he certainly knows the testing you're faced with. He knows, he knows everything about it. Of course he knows about it. He sent it. He designed it. He crafted it. He, he has it perfectly suited in intensity, duration, nature. Everything about that test is what he designs. It's a work of art. And he wants you to appreciate what he's doing in your life. So he knows what you're going through. This uh, passage helps us in that. All right. So subpoint A. And actually, I cut and pasted this from the previous class. So if you took your notes in Galilee Ministry 34, you've already got this written down in paper somewhere. Sparrows may be a dime a dozen, but God's loving kindness takes care of them. Sparrows may be a dime a dozen. That's our idiom. Here it's five for two pennies. Sparrows may be a dime a dozen, but God's loving kindness takes care of them. Think about the things in your life that you dismiss because they're so trivial or they're so unimportant. They're so cheap. Who cares? Right. Do you have other circumstances and details that you just blow off because, I mean, let's face it, they're just kind of cheap. They're just kind of inconsequential. What's the big deal? Well, this passage tells us that God doesn't have that attitude. There's nothing beneath his notice or his attention or his care. Even something as, as uh, humble as, as a sparrow. That sparrow has a purpose. That sparrow is going to glorify God as it lives, as it dies, as it accomplishes God's purpose. All right. A lot of times I illustrate with fruit flies because they only live a matter of hours. And, and it's kind of fun to pick on them. But uh, really... How are we any different if we live 80 years or 100 years? How are we any different than fruit flies that, that live a matter of hours? It's just a matter of proportion or scale, and it's all puny compared to the infinite nature of God and his glory and his, etern- his eternity and his power. So if we think we're, any, if we're superior to the fruit fly, okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, we're superior to the fruit fly. Is that something to be proud of? <laughs> you know, it's all just a relative scale anyway. So, uh, yeah, are they beneath our notice? They're not beneath God's notice. Each aspect of his creation is a part of his plan and his purpose to glorify Jesus Christ. Now, Deisman has a good work. Uh, Adolf Deisman, back in the late uh, 1800s. Um, beep. Okay. That was loud. Turn that off. Adolf Deisman uh, wrote a number of things in the late 1900s, 19th century, as a variety of archaeological finds and manuscripts and things were becoming more and more known. And so I recommend his Light from the Ancient East. That's what LAE stands for. And he, uh, he compiled a list of not only archaeological, uh, archaeological finds, but also uh, written inscriptions and anything secular that testifies to anything biblical. And he created a wonderful catalog, and it just sheds additional light on the things of Scripture. And uh, this is one area where he was able to corroborate the uh, Scripture record with other records from history. And he says here, this is from page 270, in order to arm his disciples for their dangerous work in the world with the same trust in God that filled his own heart, Jesus exhorts them thus, and he quotes both Matthew 10 as well as Luke. 
In Matthew 10, the economics are a little different. He says, Fear not are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, King James, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Okay, and unfortunately we got linty here this morning, so if we need help with our farthings and our shillings and our pence and our whatnot, we'll, uh, we'll get her to help us out after class. Um, so in Matthew, the economics is two for a farthing. And uh, one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. You understand that? I mean, we know that for ourselves, right? Our days are numbered. They were numbered before there was even one of them. The whole span of our time was predetermined in the, in the divine decrees and the grace eternal plan of the ages. And so we have our X number of days. You know the sparrows have the same thing? X number of sparrow days, right? X num- I mean, they're not going to drop dead until the Father's sovereignty de- uh, calls for that. Again, uh, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Luke has recorded the saying somewhat differently when he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? So the difference between these two versions is practically quite unimportant, although the equation two to five and one to two does not hold mathematically. On the purchaser taking a larger number of birds, the proportional price may well have been reduced. As we should say nowadays, they came cheaper by the half dozen. And so, yeah, if you want to buy two, it costs you a penny, or you can get five for two pennies. It is quite possible Jesus repeated this particular homily, uh, analogical conclusion from the less uh, to the greater, on more than one occasion with variance. So, you know, he's speaking and he gives the figure of speech and he quotes a different fee or a different price, depending on where he was and what the price truly was that day. Um, be that as it may, the saying about sparrows apart, of course, from the mighty fear not, uh, which is indivisible, contains a threefold statement if we analyze it as an economic document of the imperial period. And he points out that this is very much consistent with imperial Rome. First of all, sparrows were a very cheap article sold in the market as food for the poor. Uh, according to the Roman records, they were sold in the market either by uh, the pair or in fives, the pair being the smallest, and five, the next smallest quantity sold. I mean, you couldn't buy three or four. If you wanted more than two, then you bought five. And um, <laughs> something I learned about subway tickets in Kiev. I needed nine. I had figured out how many more classes. I had figured out how many tokens I still had in my pocket, how many more tokens I needed. figured out how many I'd spent. I, was, I didn't want to keep these stupid Ukrainian Kopec penny things. And so I said, okay, I need nine more tokens. And then... The non-English speaking lady in the window wouldn't sell me nine. You could either buy two or you could buy ten. I didn't want ten. I wanted nine. So I bought ten. Then I only used six anyway, so ended up leaving four on the shelf for the next pastor that comes to town. Where did that come from? Oh, right here. Uh, if you're gonna buy if you're gonna buy sparrows in a Roman market, you're either gonna buy two or you're gonna buy five. The market price at the time of Jesus was a farthing a pair or two farthings uh, for five. And, of course, you can do different things to try to bring it into $2,009. That's not the point. If you do such an exercise, you're kind of missing the point of this passage. But now notice, he says he goes on to say, uh, there is a highly important commercial law of the emperor Diocletian known as the maximum tariff, the greater part of which has long been known from inscriptions. 
All kinds of articles of commerce are quoted in this tariff, and to each item is attached the highest price at which it is to be allowed to be sold. They put price controls on some of the uh, food items, grain and, and sparrows and whatnot, for the poor, uh, for the, uh, the basic population of Rome, the, the hordes of, uh, of Rome. Members of the fifth class, by the way, if you, uh, you read that kind of history. And uh, historians of the imperial period are not agreed as to the real purpose of this tariff, but the question does not concern us here. The interesting point for us is that a new fragment of the tariff, which was discovered in uh, Aguira in 1899, gives us the highest price for sparrows. From it, we learn the following particulars, applying, of course, to the end of the 3rd century A.D. That's by the time you get to Diocletian there. Of all birds used for food, sparrows are the cheapest. They are cheaper, for instance, than thrushes. I don't even know how to pronounce them. Becca, fishios, and starlings. Did I pronounce that wrong? You guys are connoisseurs of game game birds. Uh, Cheap birds? Okay. (laughs) Glad you guys are so fond of cheap birds. They were usually sold in decades. Ten seems to have been the regular number with all sorts of small animals. Uh, We typically have things in dozens. They had things in decades. The tariff, for instance, gives the price for 10 thrushes, 10 of these becca birds, and 10 starlings. According to the tariff, 10 sparrows are to be sold for at most 16 denarii. This does not mean the old silver denarii, but the new copper coins whose value uh, Theodore Momsen and Solomon Reinach agree in estimating at uh, less than an English farthing. The uh, market price of 10 sparrows was fixed at a maximum of three pence half penny. All right, Diceman was giving us this in English currency for the day. From what Jesus says, the half decade of sparrows in his day cost about one penny. Uh, the whole decade would therefore cost about two pence, taking into account the difference in date uh, between Christ's day and Diocletian's day. And the fact that Diocletian is fixing a maximum price, we cannot deny that Jesus spoke with correct observation of the conditions of everyday life. This is not a mere game that we've been playing with farthings. The edict of the Emperor Diocletian helps us, I think, to understand one of the finest utterances of Jesus and its original significance. Even in small things, Jesus is great. I appreciated reading that. Even in small things, Jesus is great. The unerring eye for actualities that asserts itself so repeatedly in the gospel parables comes out also in the saying about the sparrows. And uh, he illustrates in another realm and things that Paul goes into. Um, okay, so that's what we have. God's taking care of the sparrows. Poor, miserable little creatures fluttering there, such numbers of them in the vendor's cages. A great many can be had for a very small sum, so trifling is their value. And yet each one of them was loved by the Heavenly Father. How much more will God care for man whose soul is worth more than the whole world? Again, I just found that to be rather uh, appropriate. Point B. Second thing we want to get out of this. Precise numeration of hair follicles may seem trivial. But God's grace plan incorporates all things to both their infinitesimal and their infinite extents. Both to their infinitesimal and their infinite extents. You understand both extremes. Infinitesimal is the tiniest, smallest, 
nearest to zero, yet above zero, fraction of a detail. You know, infinite is as far to away from zero as you can get, right? Which is forever. And infinitesimal is as close to zero as you can get, where the, the fraction or the, the, uh, the difference, the limit, if you want to think in terms of calculus, the limit between this number and zero is as small as uh, can be imagined, infinitesimally small. And this is the nature of God's plan. Every last detail, every sub-detail of every detail, it's all a part of his sovereign plan. He's worked it all out. And so we can, uh, we can be comforted by that principle. That our days are numbered, our hairs are numbered, our steps are numbered. As David says, teach me to order my ways, um, that I may present to you a, a heart of wisdom. We need to understand that uh, it's the best thing we can do is to align ourselves with God's plan. Because he's got it all laid out before we were even on the scene. So this may seem trivial. And the, the thing is, you know, the, the unbeliever has no grasp for why we are wasting our time in Bible class. Why do we go to church so much? And why, why bother? What's the point? It seems okay. So, and, and because of their approach, you know, you just sit there and the preacher says some nice things and you get some, you know, little moral homilies or helpful tips for life kind of stuff. They've got this concept of what church even is. And, uh, and they wonder, well, why do you go to church so much? What's the point? What are you getting out of it? Do the details really matter? Yes, the details matter. Every last detail matters. And uh, when you, you could maybe use this passage to say, you know what? God's counted the hairs on your head. See, those are details. God is a God of the details. We need to understand that. So, how worthy are you? What are we worth? We're worth more than sparrows. So I don't expect I'm going to buy you for uh, a penny. Okay, or even a fifth of a penny. What are you worth? What's your price? What's my price? What is our value in God's sight? Can we put a monetary figure to that? When we consider that we were purchased, we were redeemed, not with gold or silver or things that perish, but with the precious blood of Christ. We have been redeemed with uh, that which has no earthly price. What is our value? And this is something to understand because value is always uh, relative to the one who's, in whose eyes it's being evaluated, right? Did I say that right? Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Value is in the eyes of the buyer. Uh, you know, it might be worthless to you, but if you're the seller and they're the buyer and they're going to fork over the bucks for it, well, then that's the value, right? So what's our value? Well, our value is not in our own eyes. Our value is in God's eyes. And that becomes important. Uh, the whole cult and uh, what turns my stomach is the, is the uh, philosophy we talked about at breakfast this morning was the, uh, the, uh, the whole approach to self-esteem. That our world is wrapped up in. And everything about building your self-esteem and your own, uh, the, the psychology of it is just amazing. Because none of it's biblical. Uh, and the idea of self-esteem, okay. Colonel years ago taught spiritual self-esteem, which I thought was a worthwhile study. But the idea, your worth is not in your side anyway. Your worth is in God's side. 
And if you're having a pity party or if you have low self-esteem, as the world would call it, okay, fine. But the answer is not to inflate your image in your eyes. The answer is to change your image to God's eyes. And so rather than feeling better about yourself, that, yeah, I'm okay, you're okay approach, it's not your eyes anyway. It's in God's eyes. So change your eyes to God's eyes and look at it with His perspective. You won't have a self-esteem. You can have a God the Father esteem for what He esteems. And that's your value is in His sight. Our value to God is proportionately beyond his disproportionate care for worthless sparrows. That's a fun thing to think about. Our value to God is proportionately beyond his disproportionate care for worthless sparrows. And we'll look at some verses and we'll see some things. The vocabulary here is diaphero, D-I-A-P-H-E-R-O, number 1308. Um, and so we'll, we'll expand upon this here in a little bit. But understand what you're worth. And before you understand what you're worth, it's more than you're, worthly, you're, you're, you're worth more than these worthless birds. Okay? So I tell you, you know, you're, you're worth more than these worthless birds. It doesn't seem to be very complimentary, right? You know, it's like telling your wife that she's prettier than some ugly pit bull on the street. Now, it's a true statement, of course. It's true. You look at this hideous, ugly pit bull or those Chinese, those Chinese, what are they, Sharpay kind of dogs with all the folds and all the wrinkles and that. Things are the ugliest things I've ever seen. And so, yeah, you tell your wife, sweetie, you're, uh, you're prettier than this ugly mutt. Now, you're laughing because that seems kind of insulting, right? I mean, yeah, it's not much of a compliment. Okay? But understand, now, what if, what if that ugly mutt is actually beloved by their owner? And to them, in their eyes, it's a beautiful, beautiful animal. And they love this animal, and they devote themselves to this animal. They spent 6000 bucks, you know, breeding and medicating and raising and, and uh, grooming and uh, feeding. And, you know, amazing how whoever ever invented that racket, I'm, my hat's off to them, because they got top dollar for this ugly thing. And I think that's the glories of capitalism. But... Um, so, even though, this is the point on these worthless sparrows. Because God has a disproportionate care for those worthless sparrows. What we've just done is we've just multiplied the multiplier. We've just multiplied God's care. God's estimation. So, it'd be... Uh, I can find another way to illustrate this. Because his care for the sparrows, even though we view the sparrows as worthless, we view the sparrows as, you know, five for two pennies. In our mind, those things are worthless. God cares for them. So it shows that he puts a high price on these things. Okay? Wow. 
that just adjusts your whole economics right there. You say, really? Have you ever had your mind just so totally overwhelmed when you realize that there's a scale of purchasing available here and in, in a purchasing power or some kind of a, uh, thing? I remember, you know, in Germany you could get, uh, well, the Deutschmark plummeted while I was over there, but you still got a pretty good exchange rate, two to one dollars per Deutschmark. Uh, and then, or four to one, different different times. When Shirley was there, he got big bucks for the Deutschmark for the dollar. But um, but then you went from West Germany to East Germany, and it was ten to one. It was ten East German marks for one West German mark. And uh, your purchasing power just exploded when you realized that these things you're looking at are just dirt cheap. See, and then and then you get humbled when you see. Uh, you know, the, these Germans shopping for what they're shopping for and this lady that's agonizing over this purchase of what she wants to buy and she picks it up and puts it back and then picks it up and looks at it some more and puts it back and then kind of searches through her purse and decides she doesn't have the money for it and starts to walk out and then she turns around and decides, well, okay, she has the money for it and she takes it off the shelf and she spends her money to buy this little item, Right? And then you, you, you take all that in as you're watching all that, and you go, I've got ten of them in my bag right here ready to go. I'm, I'm going to go buy these, you know, a whole stack of them and ship them home and stuff. And you didn't realize what you thought were just little trinkets and souvenirs that you just grabbed ten of them and you're ready to send them to your family and friends and whatever. You thought these are just cheap little trinkets. And then you watched her treasuring and agonizing and struggling and thinking, should I get one? It kind of brings everything else into a different kind of focus. And so we would view these sparrows as worthless, but he shows a disproportionate care for them. And if he shows that disproportionate care for these worthless sparrows, how much more care is he going to show for things of even greater worth? Obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's just multiplying the multiplier is what you're doing. The vocabulary here is diaphoro, which is an interesting term, number 1308. And uh, it, it really is a comparison term. And oftentimes when, it, when it's used as a comparison, then we find that there is no comparison. It's just simply greater, better, more worthwhile. Um, but you get to a point where it's so worthwhile that you can't live without it. It is absolutely essential. See? And that's what we have. Now, in the passages here, I think you'll notice they're all pretty much similar or redundant. And yet they're used multiple times. Like in Matthew, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12, uh, Matthew records three uses here. In 6.26, this is where uh, we want to have our secular life and our temporal life in, or our spiritual life in the right, uh, in the right priority. Do not worry about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And this is the parallel again. God feeds the birds. He takes care of the birds. He knows you're hungry. He knows you need food. I mean, he designed your body to be... Uh, to, uh, to eat. He knows you have to eat to sustain your body. He designed your body. All right, over in 10.31, that's our parallel to our passage today about do not fear those who kill the body. Um, 
are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And then verse 30, your very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. In 12.12, see Matthew records three of these. Uh, It's not birds this time, but sheep. You know what, uh, about working on the Sabbath. He says, you know what, if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, aren't you going to take it out and save his life? How much more valuable than a man uh, then is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And this was the controversy there. And they were daring him, double dog daring him, to heal this guy on the Sabbath. And he says, of course I'm going to heal the guy. What would you expect? In Luke 12, not only do we have it in verse 7, but the same chapter down in verse 24. That we'll get into when we, um, oh, I forget which emphasis it is. It's coming up in one of our upcoming emphases. Again, do not worry as to your life, what you will eat, or your body, what you will put on. Life has more than food, the body more than clothing. And yet, remember, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. This is the orientation we should have to financial provision. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? You know, and it's interesting, uh, God cares for us. We are worth to him. But there's two passages that Paul uses the same vocabulary in ways that I find interesting because I think it shows that we are not only valuable, but absolutely essential. Romans 2.18 and Philippians 1.10 Now, these passages have entirely different contexts, and yet it is the same vocabulary. And I think we can take the concept of essentiality back into the passages in the Gospels and relate it there. Romans 2.18. This is uh, in the rebuke against Israel and what they thought was their advantage and their pride for... uh, thinking that their status was worth something. Um, He says, If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Approve the things that are essential. In other words, they're not only better, they're not only greater, they are beyond anything else. They are absolutely essential. So much better that they are essential. So you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. And it goes on. There's a long chain of if here. And then he finally tells them that they better, uh, they better live with their preaching. Over to Philippians. Philippians 1.10. Another use of this term where it's translated essential. Or the things that are excellent. Essential. He says in verse 9, Philippians 1 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve the things that are essential or excellent or greater. In other words, they are so much better, they are proportionately beyond anything else you could compare them to. So they are beyond greater. They are excellent or essential in order to be sincere, blameless until the day of Christ. 
So you take those terminologies in Romans 2 and Philippians 1 and you say, are you not worth more than the sparrows? Yes, much more, infinitely more. In fact, believers are not only valuable, but believers are essential. Believers are worth so much that God gave His Son. Say, God did not send His Son on behalf of the sparrows. He cares for them. He loves them. He provides for them. They're worthy in His sight, but not... For the cost of his son. That's the value of humanity. That's the proportion. That's what we have to identify. That's why he's worthy of our fear. That's why we serve him in the fear and the trembling. That's why we don't fear the uh, things that are not essential. The earthly things. The secular tests. Alright. Emphasis number four is to acknowledge Christ. Verses 8 through 12. Acknowledging Christ. We'll read through the verses, but I think, let's see. It's kind of a shame to get started on it with only five minutes remaining. Luke 12, verses 8 through 12. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God, acknowledging Christ. We're going to talk about our role as witnesses in acknowledging Christ. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Is that unpardonable sin we did quite a bit of work on before and imagine we'll do more work on it again. It's a problem passage that bothers folks and we want to make sure we're, we're uh, solid on it. Verse 11 says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. This passage is a big encouragement for us if we anticipate we're going to be used by God in a ministry of some sort. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say, what you ought to say. Recognizing that if you've got a work assignment in giving the gospel to somebody, be in fellowship. Uh, utilize the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Be relaxed about it. Certainly know your gospel. Be prepared. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, you know, this passage doesn't teach you to neglect your preparation or your training. Uh, you know, I guess there's a flawed approach to this that says, oh, I don't need to study. I don't need to learn the languages. I just need to get up and speak because the Holy Spirit will tell me that hour what to speak. And so you get this kind of amateur approach to Bible teaching or this kind of mystical approach to evangelism and all that. No, this passage is not telling you to be sloppy or not to prepare. But it does say, having prepared, relax. Don't, be, don't, don't work yourself up in a dither over the specifics of uh, are these the right words, are they the wrong words, are they uh, going to be taken the wrong way, uh, uh, and all this other stuff. Just love the Lord, stay in fellowship, prepare, and, uh, and let Him minister and relax about it. And also, when you get home that night, don't kill yourself with grief, um, replaying in your mind uh, every, every word spoken and everything that was spoken. Do you ever do that? And, and you go, oh man, I said the wrong thing. I should have said this. And oh, I should have said that. Fruitless waste of time. You can, you can lose sleep, staying up all night, thinking, oh, well, what if I'd have said this? I should have said that. Well, you didn't, so get over it, okay? You said what you said. If you were in fellowship, 
trusting in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then let it go. You really think the Holy Spirit messed up and said the wrong thing? <laughs> All right. I think he's a little bit better prepared than that. He knew what he was doing. And there's... Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll illustrate this some more next week, but it's a good... Uh, we may not have martyrdom in store for us, or maybe we will, but whatever it is that we have in store for us, on whatever occasion, in whatever venue, if you're in front of one person, if you're in front of ten people, if you're in front of the president, wherever you are, just know that you're prepared, you're suited, you're equipped, relax about it, stay in fellowship, walk in the light, and uh, let him use you to communicate whatever it is he wants to communicate. So... Uh, yeah, let's, uh, two minutes. I owe you two minutes, didn't I? I think I took you four minutes long last time. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll cut it two minutes early because this is really a good stopping point. I'd, to try to start on this would be foolish. So let's stop here and uh, pick it up next time. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this time together. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.